Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Author Mia Alvar writes of The Body Papers, The Body Papers is an extraordinary portrait of the artist as survivor. From a legacy of trauma and secrecy spanning oceans and generations, Grace Toulousen has crafted a wise, lucid, and big-hearted stand against silence, a literary lifeline for all of us who have endured profound pain and hope to be seen and loved through it. Kirkus Reviews has called the body papers moving and eloquent, a testament not only to one woman's fierce will to live, but also to the healing power of speaking the unspeakable. And Celeste Ng uh, writes about the body papers, it is a stunning work by a powerful new writer who, like the best memoirists, transcends the personal to speak on a universal level. Grace Toulousen is a writer and writing teacher her work has appeared in Brevity, Creative Nonfiction, The Rumpus, and many others. She teaches in the Tufts University English Department and the Jonathan M. Tisch College of Civic Life. She is a recipient of, the, of a U.S. Fulbright Fellowship to the Philippines and is a longtime member and teacher at Grub Street, an independent creative writing center. Noelle Alumet, did I get that right, Noelle? Thank you. Is the author of the novels Letters to Montgomery Clift and the Los Angeles Times bestseller Talking to the Moon. He is the recipient of the Stonewall Book Award for, from the American Booksellers Association, and his work has appeared in McSweeney's, LA Review of Books, LA Weekly, The Advocate, and USA Today. And uh, Noel is also a big part of the Skylight family here. He's been hosting events here for years, a uh, very long time, and he's just a great, wonderful person. So we're very fortunate to have these two incredibly talented authors here with us today. Please join me in welcoming Grace Toulousen and Noel Alumet. Thank you, Skylight Books. Thank you, uh, Noel. I was going to call you Ulamit. Um, and I'm, what I'm going to do is read from a couple of short sections from um, the body papers, and then we'll be in conversation. Okay. Every day in Manila, something upsets my expectations, which is a feeble way of saying what I fear makes me ungrateful, ugly, and so American. Every day here, I am offended. I am appalled by the rotting inequality, greed, corruption, and lawlessness. I worry for the men working construction in the dozens of buildings being erected in the area I'm living in, whose daily income would just about cover the cost of my morning Starbucks. On my way to get coffee one morning, I pass a commotion at the building site two blocks from my condo. A group of men had fallen from the bamboo scaffolding several stories up 
and two of them died. Of course, unfair labor practices exist in the US, but now that I'm living in this overcrowded city of 10 million, it's harder to look away from the bodies at my feet. We feel their presence above us as we walk from our condo to a restaurant or to the gym. My friend Joanne, a poet, writes a poem called The Ghost Workers about these men who would not be allowed to enter the buildings they make. Once done, the workers who swung from one window to the next will be invisible to wealthy Westerners who live here. As long as the skyscrapers shine, as long as the rebar vanishes beneath a patina of glossy stone. Anyone looking for an emblem of globalization, that grandchild of empire, should look to those who fall to their deaths to strengthen its foundation. In Manila, people don't know what to make of me. I appear to be Filipino, but the way I move and speak and stand blurs easy identification. Strangers often ask me a series of questions to try and pin me down. Where are you from? What is your family name? Do you speak our language? Because we have so much time to kill in traffic, taxi drivers ask over and over again the most painful question. How many children do you have? I implore the driver to let me sit in the front passenger seat because it's the only way to distract my anxious mind from panicking in the interminable traffic. The air conditioner vent blows cold air in my face and I don't feel as cramped as when I'm in the back seat. The driver begrudgingly moves his stuff to the floor and I feel I owe him a conversation. We sit so closely that sometimes our arm hairs brush against each other. Within moments, the windshield and windows obscured by laminated licenses and authorizations swinging from their hooks. The driver asks if I have children. Every single time, I consider lying to shut the exchange down. But lately, I've used these moments to gauge how I'm feeling about my new reality. Should I reveal to this stranger what's been taken from my body? I practice speaking without letting my voice crack. I don't have children, and I can't have a baby anymore. The previous year, as the days ticked closer and I attended pre-op appointments for my preventative oophorectomy, I was overcome by a fog of grief and disbelief. Until the date to remove my ovaries approached on the calendar, I hadn't realized how much I wanted to spool back the days so I could get pregnant. The surgery would give birth to the postmenopausal version of me. I begrudgingly made a deal with my body, my healthy ovaries for more quality time without ovarian cancer. I wondered who would I become once I crossed the street to walk amidst the invisible, irrelevant women in our society. At middle age, would I be suddenly become a crone, a virago, a hag? I had learned these words when I was 14, studying for the SAT, surprised at all the ways one could express contempt for women. I am not a mother. Without knowing a thing about me, the driver seems insulted by my answer. Why not? I know I'm under no obligation to explain myself, but guilt drives much of my behavior these days, and I attempt an honest answer. My husband and I don't have enough money. 
which I realize immediately is a ludicrous thing for me to say as a foreign passenger of a Filipino taxi. What else could motivate someone to spend 24-hour shifts in the most challenging traffic conditions on the planet than the faces of the loved ones they are feeding with the fares? And then I spin more details, trying to persuade the driver that it's much more expensive in the States than they imagine. It's because my husband and I work so much, because we don't have time, because families in the US can't rely on the same web of connections, because we're still paying off our student loans, because it's impossible for us to own a home in Boston, on and on. As he listens to my whining, at some point, the taxi driver takes his eyes off the line dance of trucks, vans, jeepneys, SUVs, motorcycles, and pedestrians on the road ahead so he can stare hard at me and respond with some version of, none of that has anything to do with having a child. And I pull out my last card. I can't have children because of cancer. This doesn't convey the nuances of my story, the genetic tests, the trauma my body endured as a child, the heightened risk of hereditary breast and ovarian cancers, the periodic visits from depression, the agonizing decisions I've had to make about my body, but it's a reliable conversation stopper. We shift to talking about anything else, the heat, the traffic, if I happen to know anyone who is hiring a driver in the States. I'll read from one more section. So my family and I immigrated to the US when I was two years old. And part of the book, I write about what the experience of immigration is like, which in some ways, it's like um, a death. It's like moving to another planet. Um, there's so many um, ways that, that it's uh, a jarring um, feeling or experience. I lost my first name, Bubut, and later, even when I could hear the love in the voice of a, the person who had known me as a baby, I came to hate this name. Maybe in our language it was beautiful, but in English it sounded like an insult, Bubut. I corrected people, reminding them I was an American now and only used my American name. My first country disappeared as a place. I never heard it mentioned in the news, and not too many people in my small town had heard of it. They knew the neighbors, China and Taiwan, where toys and electronics were made. Their fathers and uncles who had served in the military knew Subic and Clark military bases and could say Mahalkita. We were not an affectionate family during those difficult early years in the US, so I did not know that they were parroting I love you, nor did I wonder who taught those men that phrase. This is what happens when assimilation brings forth erasure. I lost my first language, Tagalog. My parents wanted us to embrace English only. They believed Americans would discriminate against us if they heard an accent in our voice. My parents still spoke to each other in Tagalog if they wanted to talk about us children without moving out of earshot. We learned to listen closely when we heard our names popping from their otherwise indecipherable sentences. My mother told me that her parents did the same thing to her, except in Spanish, a language they continued to speak with pride, a marker of their class status and education long after the colonizers had left. 
Inside a few cells in my brain, I believe there's a part of me that still knows Tagalog. I feel pain when I attempt to speak it, as though there is something I want to say desperately that can be expressed only in my first language. But I can't access the words or that part of me that named the world, fir world first in Tagalog. When I hear strangers speaking Filipino languages, I am drawn to them as kin. Thank you. Thank you very much, Grace, for your work. Um, I also want to invite people to get closer. I feel like saying <laughs> if you want to move closer to like the second, first, second, third row, that'd be great. So that um, you know we can have uh, feel more. We're having a conversation. You know, I also uh, would love it if you know as we start talking that we get intimate and start talking about really interesting things because. The Body Papers, um, I thought, was truly brave um, for a number of reasons. Um, and I think it's interesting that Celeste Ng said, uh, you're a powerful new writer, um, considering that you've been writing for decades now. <laughs> you know, you're new, yes. uh, maybe new author, but new you author. know, new author, right? <laughs> you know, but you've been writing for, for decades. And um, can you talk about just the kernels of the Body Papers, like how how it came about. Um, uh, I, I remember a time when you. I remember the time when you went to to get the Fulbright. When you went to go engage yeah. in the Fulbright, um, and you certainly weren't. Did you write that there, or did this happen years before? How did this begin? Yes. So I think Celeste probably did mean like a new a new <laughs> author on the scene as opposed to writer. Because we, um, I mean, I've worked with her in a writing group, so she knows I've been writing for a long time. Um, but the kernel of the body papers was actually um, here in California. I went to UC Irvine for my MFA, and I wrote what, I mean, I wrote pieces of this that became my thesis in fiction. So I've always been interested in writing about my family, and I was in the, a program for fiction, so I, it was a very loosely autobiographical novel that I turned in as my, as my thesis for UC Irvine. And when I looked back at that, you know, mess of pages I wrote 20 years ago, there are some scenes that I changed um, and included in the body papers. So there's a way that, that you know, it started here. Um, but I never thought that I was writing a memoir. I never thought that I was writing a book um, that became the body papers. What I was doing is I was working on fiction and then writing essays on the side to like do something else. Like, you know, as you know, as a novelist, when you work on a novel, it can be like many years without publishing anything from it. Um, and so I, I would work on these essays kind of on the side and um, they came really easy. They were fun to write. I don't mean that they were happy fun, but it was like really engaging for me to, to be working on them. And I also published them quite easily, some of them pretty easily as well. Um, and at one point, my, I was in the Philippines um, on the Fulbright with my friend Joanne. I read, I read that poem from her, um, The Ghost Workers. And she said, um, I was complaining. I was like, oh, I'm never going to publish a book. Like, it's been like 20 years since I graduated from grad school. It's like, it's not going to happen. 
And she said, you know, why don't you collect your essays the way that poets collect poems and put them in a collection and send them out to contests the same as poets do? Um, and I did. I sat with her, put it together in like an hour, sent it out, and didn't think about it again. And then I got these emails back about three or six months later that said the, the work was a finalist um, or honorable mention for various contests. And that's when I took it seriously. And I thought, oh, there might be something here. And then I did work on it. And the, um, the note from the, the um, submission um, announcement from Restless Books came up. And the, it was for the Restless Books um, Prize for New Immigrant Writing. And I saw that and I read what the description was, which was they were, they were committed to publishing new voices, immigrant voices, sometimes innovative, eclectic, different kinds of work. Um, and I thought, that's me. Like, that's exactly me. Wouldn't it be great if I um, won? And, but I did what I always do, which is I sent it and then forgot about it. Um, because I, and then when I finally got the message that, I, that the publisher wanted to speak with me, um, I actually didn't think he was gonna tell me that I won the prize. I thought he was going, I don't know what he was gonna tell me, but I was so nervous about his email. I emailed a friend of mine, Calvin, and um, said, uh, I was like, I don't know why this publisher is emailing me. And he's like, call the publisher right now and then call me back right afterwards. And then I felt brave enough to do that. And, and you know, the publisher said that I had won and that we'd be publishing the body papers. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, um, now they're, they're, they're set, their um, submission process just ended, right? It so. did. So they just closed their submission for the prize and they announced, I think it's in January, but do look out for it if you're interested or if you know people who might um, benefit from, from submitting their work to this prize. I think it closed, it'll open up again um, in the winter and then uh, it'll close, I think, in February. Yeah. And I just, so you know, well, first of all, um, you should definitely buy the book, but you can, what's great about having your book is you can sort of see the quality that they'll put out, you know, if you it's win. So it's really, so good. I was actually kind of um, pleasantly surprised it was, in a, it's it's being done in, in hardcover, yes. um, the beautiful design, <laughs> so, yeah. um, because sometimes people win contests and you sort of, you can tell it was almost basically stapled together, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but, but this, uh, first of all, it's a, it's a beautiful looking book. You know, so um, please keep this uh, this press in mind um, when you know looking to get published. So, um, but speaking of a of a beautiful book, I was reading this, um, and it is a beautiful book. Thank you. Um, it is a truly beautiful book in so many ways, and um, and uh, T. Kira Madden, who's also a memoirist, was here too, and um, and. Uh, her book, like yours, is really they're more personal essays, mm -hmm. right? It's a collection of personal essays as opposed to, like, um, a book with uh, a a this a running narrative about mm -hmm. something, right? And so you're yes. you're you're taking um, bits and pieces of your life and talking about it. And I was curious to know um, what was left out. Oh, a lot, <laughs> a ton. Talk, how do yeah. you how do you make those cuts? Like you have yeah. you have all these all these personal essays about your life, and then how do you so oh, I'm going to do use the, these stories as opposed to those stories. Um, a lot was cut out. I mean, the difference between the manuscript and what you have in this the finished book is really different. And I was lucky to have a wonderful editor and publisher and a writing group who helped me make decisions. And I made decisions even very late in the process to move work that was in the end of the collection into the beginning. Um, 
And so that made a big difference as well. Um, we were calling it an essay collection, then we called it a memoir and essays, and now it's called a memoir. But even um, the New York Times, when they reviewed it a week ago, was calling it a memoir and essays. Mm -hmm. So I believe that you know it probably reads like that more. Um, and these are these did start out as essays. I wrote new material for the book um, to like fill in some gaps to make it feel more like a memoir. Um, for example, there was practically nothing about my mother, and my um, someone in the publishing company said asked me like, "Did you grow up with your mother?" And I was like, "Yeah, I did." And he said, "Well, why isn't she in the book at all?" And I was like because I probably didn't want to write about her because yeah. um, I was too scared. Um, but I did. I wrote new, this new material about her for, for the book that has not been published before. Um, but it is, it, you know, I'm sure it feels like an essay collection because they, they started as essays. Um, but hopefully it feels like a continuous reading experience that feels like it's all comes together. Um, and that is from the act of editing and cutting and revising. Um, I, I might have had like double the material that you have in the book, but a lot of it wasn't really relevant to the arc that we were making. And there's ways that I was trying to hide some of the more difficult material with li lots of other stuff that didn't matter as much or wasn't as relevant. And I thought like, oh, the stuff about my father, the stuff about um, family trauma, that's just gonna be like a little bit of the book. And But we started to like shave away everything that wasn't that, and then all of a sudden you get this book that does focus on difficult topics that we don't talk about very much. Um, and so it's not as hidden. And I'm grateful for that. I'm glad that I had a team of people to help me um, you know, move away that th the material that wasn't as relevant. Let's let's talk about difficult topics. Sure. Because um, you you jump in there. I mean, you 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 know open yourself up um, in ways that were just touching and and beautiful and somewhat scary. Actually, can you can you talk about particularly the, the mental health issues that mm -hmm. um, you you explore in your essays? Um, how was your process with that? Um, did that trigger anything? Did it, you know, all of that? Thank you. Well, I've been teaching um, college students, undergraduates for I think 15 years or so now. And a few, two, I teach really small classes, only uh, 12 usually. And two of those students um, died by suicide over the 10 or 15 years that I was teaching. And so I felt really strongly about uh, coming out, I guess, with my own issues with mental health and depression, including when I was in college, um, I was in the counseling services twice a week. Like I had a standing, to, you know, twice a week appointment there, and I am very open with my students about that because I wanted them. I know I'm in a position of power as their professor, and for them to see that I've struggled with mental health issues as a college student, maybe that would be helpful. Um, and so with that practice of talking about it in my class situations, I think I felt more comfortable being even more public with, with these things. Um, because I think by not talking about it, we stigmatize mental health mm -hmm. and there's no need to. It's like right. diabetes, asthma, right. like cancer, right. all these, these issues, medical issues that people struggle with. Why should that be you know, more acceptable than depression or anxiety or you know, any other kind of mental health issue, OCD, that people struggle with? They should get treatment. They should be respected in the community. They shouldn't be afraid they're going to lose their job or friends or anything. Um, these are illnesses that can be deadly. Right. So it, I took it very seriously, and I felt you know, strongly about you know, being open myself that I struggle with these things. Um, 
and I probably was all in a place where I could talk about it. Like I wasn't, I've done like enough work and tried to find the things that would make my life um, more livable. And I wasn't like actively struggling with these issues. So that also what was why I was able to write about it. I was writing about it from a place of like strength, I think. I, and, that, and that really comes through in, in the book. And, and I want to, I want to be this, I want to make this clear because sometimes when we talk about difficult subjects like mental health, um, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, anxiety, people think, oh, I don't know if I want to read that. And I'm thinking, actually, um, you handle it in such a way, well, first of all, it's it's highly accessible. There's a lot of compassion um, when you're when you're writing about this, um, which leads to this question about being open in your writing. Um, how does, I, I probably I'm asking this question as, as I struggle with it myself, but you know, how, how, does, uh, how does one, how do you, um, be as honest as possible on the page? I think, um, I mean, I wrote these essays over 10 years mm -hmm. and I was kind of thinking of just writing to myself. I, even though it's like some of them I published pretty easily, some of them I didn't. And so I just thought, well, nobody cares. So like, if I'm going to take the time to write, I'm going to write whatever I want to write. And I'm, and I'm really writing to myself. And so I am going to, it's a relationship I have with myself. That's very important. And I'm not going to lie to myself. I'm going to be open to myself. Um, and that's really what did it is I had psychological privacy. I didn't think about readers or critics mm -hmm. so much when I was putting it down. You know, later when I was revising and developing, like I did show it to people. Um, and actually some of the material there, I recall um, showing it for the first time to my writing group and Chip who's in my writing group is here. Um, and I was really scared that day. Like I, I had sent it to them and two weeks before and I was coming into writing group and I was thinking, okay, they're not gonna wanna be my friends anymore because um, now they know the truth about me. They know like the things I struggle with and it was, I was really scared. But then they gave me this, this experience that I, they were so accepting and loving and were such champions for me that I realized it's not the thing I think in my head about what will happen if I'm honest about my experiences is not actually what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Most times, you know, if you're with the right people, like they will accept you and be proud of you and all that. Can we can we talk about I guess being with 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 the right people? Mm -hmm. um, um, about criticizing people in your in your group criticizing your life basically right mm -hmm. <laughs> you know talking about your your writing and your in your work and and how do you take that as a writer when someone says oh you know you're sounding a little maybe you're sounding a little too um, too whiny in the section or you're or you're, you're, you're sounding um, not truthful um, as a as a writer as an artist how do you take that kind of criticism um, and use it if at all I mean we in my particular writing group I think we have a level of trust um, and friendship with each other that we, I mean, the ways we speak to each other, I think we're glad for it, like for mm -hmm. any hard criticism, because we know that it comes from a place of like wanting the work to be the best it can be. Um, and I, if I think back to like any interactions we've had in the group, it's always, it's, I don't, I can't think of like a time when it's been negative, when people have like reacted poorly to what's been said, because I think all of us are in there because we really want, you know, to be better and to develop our work. And it's, you know, and we can put away our um, ego or that part of us that gets hurt. Although I don't notice that people, you know, get hurt very much in the writing group either. Um, and we've done really well. Like, I mean, 
there's 11 of us and I think nine of us have books and six of them are out this year. I mean, it's an incredible group. Yeah, that's a very successful group. Yes, (laughs) And and I think this approach of, you know, coming at each other with support and love and friendship and rigor is part of that to help each other succeed and, and uh, get the best work that we can out there. But it comes from trust. Sure. Um, speaking of people responding, can we talk about how your family has responded? I know your sure. sister's here. I, mean, I want to yeah. ask you, so what did you think? No. <laughs> <laughs> Got you. I'm going. Honestly, I haven't read the book yet. <laughs> yes, she hasn't, yeah. Um, Okay. It's so my my family I've been preparing my family for years. As soon as I found out that I won the award, I talked with each of my family members. I have two parents who are living and then there's four siblings. And I talked with all of them and I said, look, I'm publishing a memoir about um, my life, our family life, and there are things I told them what would be in it. And you know, how did you feel about it? And they said, most of them, I think all of them said some version of, we've been reading your work for 20 years. Like we know who you are, what you write about, we trust you. And we trust how, you, how you're going to treat um, the different situations in our family life. Um, I also made choices to preserve their privacy by um, changing names. I don't have any photos of anybody beyond adolescence, except for my father, who, um, who I you know, asked permission from him if his image could be in the book. So it was a process of asking permission. And I know as a writer, you don't need to do that, of course, right? You don't need to ask permission of anybody. But I want to be in a relationship with my family, um, and I... And so, and it is about our life, our lives together. So I felt, for me, I felt like I did want to be in conversation with them and talk with them about it. And I think I was most nervous about my mother um, because she hadn't read the material in the book that tells stories that don't make her look very good. And I was really nervous about it. And they didn't, she, none, nobody wanted to read it in galleys. I said, okay, I'll show you the manuscript like a year before because I figured like you'd have a, they'd have a year to process it. If they were going to get mad at me, they could get mad at me like several months before. And then the galleys came in November. We were going to publish in April. And I said, okay, here's the galley. Like read the galley. And that way you can like talk with your therapist about it or whatever <laughs> before it's publication time. Um, but nobody wanted it. They wanted the final finished version, the green cover. Wow. And so they waited um, and they read it. They got, they ordered their books, you know, online and they got their books in the mail and they read them or, you know, Mary's the only one who hasn't read the, read the book. <laughs> it's fine. She's busy. She's still teaching. That's why. Um, and yeah. And, um, you know, like they've been great. I've had like hour long conversations with family members and they're crying and we're talking on the phone because we live all over the country and they lived through these stories and they know these stories in the book and yet they said I did something with them that was beyond the retelling and that was really meaningful to me. Um, I've also had some relatives disclose like I always thought I was the only one who had this horrible thing happen by my grandfather. Um, And then some family members have been contacting us to disclose and say the same exact thing, same same scenario, everything happened. And I knew I wasn't the only one because that is not the, you know, MO of, um, you know, pedophiles. But... um, but I was the only one who came out and said anything, and so I just thought I'd be alone in that for the rest of my life. But the book has opened up an opportunity for people to tell me that the same exact thing happened, and you know, this is exactly what they recognize. So that's been, I mean, I, if, if that helps them get help, then I think that's great. 
Uh, when I was reading this, I do have to say I, I felt incredibly proud of you. Oh, um, I thank felt you. incredibly proud because you opened up a vein. And um, uh, when I was I was starting writing, my mother said to me, "Don't write anything bad about Filipinos." That's what she, you know, yeah. she said. Don't write anything bad. You know, it was right. like this really. And you know, of course, I've written bad. I mean, I don't think bad things about it. I just wrote real things about Filipinos, yeah. and some of them had negative consequences about that. But I just remember that she was like. And she had this scowl on her face, like, we can't say anything bad about our community. Yeah. Like, you're not supposed to say anything bad about our community. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, did you experience that, or did you grow up with that? Um, I, mean, I understand it, because yeah. we have very little representation yeah. in yeah. popular culture and in literature. So if there's very little representation, I don't mean to represent anybody with the book, just myself, yeah. but if there's very little of it, then the danger is that people are going to think lots of Filipino families are like this. Yeah. Um, and I was aware of that. I mean, I'm aware of uh, Lois Ann Yamanaka's um, Blues Hanging, which yeah. was a book that I actually very much loved when I read it. And there was a lot of backlash about one minor character who was a pedophile. And that was, I mean, it took me 20 years to publish a book. Like, I've thought about these things for a long time, about how I was going, what I was going to write about, what was I, I was going to put into the world about our community. And I thought it was time. I mean, the Me Too movement actually was helpful for me too, because I thought that, like, wow, it's all these people saying what's happened to them. It's, it's like building this culture where it's you can speak up about this, and you're not so alone. And there's actually solidarity and strength in telling your story. And this did happen. And it's you know, if I wrote this in the author's note, but like no one had told me that this was a possibility, and so I didn't know what it was when it came. You know, when my grandfather um, started assaulting me, I didn't even know what that was. Yeah. So we need to tell the right stories when it's appropriate, of course, but. I just didn't even know that that was a reality that could happen. And you, and you, you may know that the culture was shifting, right, mm -hmm. where people were talking about this. And something that was really interesting, um, do you remember the movie Spotlight? There was a, the movie Spotlight oh, yes. about the, the abuse that was going on in the Catholic Church in Boston. And it's interesting because I went to see that with my mother, and when we first moved to the United States, we, we moved to Boston, you know, and I said to, I turned to her like, oh, thank God, Mom, we, we left Boston because I could have easily been one of those kids. And I was really like, you, you, you grew up there. <laughs> I mean, yes. you, you were in, in yeah. the midst of this, yeah. and, um, uh, and uh, uh the abuse of, of that time and how that affected your spirituality and how it affected, you know, can you, can you talk about that? About, sure. Yeah. I mean, I loved being Catholic. Like, <laughs> I would go to church every day, actually. My, my mother, my aunt told me that you take the body of Christ, you take communion every day because it's like a vitamin. And I liked it. <laughs> I mean, it was like meditative. I loved the ritual of church. Like, I would go at seven in the morning. I'd go to church. And so, but when the Spotlight story came out, in, was it 2001, I don't, or 2002, I don't remember the year, when that story broke, I stopped going to church. Mm. I couldn't go anymore. And I really missed it, because I loved the ritual and the whole thing of, of Catholic Mass. Um, I mean, I've gone a little bit back and forth for various times, and I got married in the Catholic Church, but, I mean, I just couldn't square it. I felt really, that when I, once I started to learn more and more about how the, the church structure protected the wrong people, then I just couldn't go. Um, but you know, the reason why I have that material about Spotlight in there is because Spotlight and the writing that these journalists did and the reporting changed my life and um, changed my relationship to the church. But I also saw that what, my, what had happened with my grandfather, who was getting moved around, people actually did know what, what he did. Um, 
that's the same thing that what the Catholic Church did. They did the same thing. They moved people around. Like either there's a fundamental misunderstanding of how this disease works, um, or this you know, or this kind of predatory behavior works, um, or I don't know what they thought, but it was very similar. So I saw the resonances in a family situation as in a larger like societal church situation. So that's why I wanted to put the two together. It wasn't that my family was so strange. It's actually very common, yeah. and it's this behavior to move somebody around as if they would stop doing that is, you know, horrible, but that's what people think they should do or they, what they thought they should do. Um, the book has been out since when it's been April nine, April just, so it just came out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, something, uh, also when I was reading this, because I've seen this, um, as Kavi said, I've been hosting events here since 2000 and, um, I've introduced many writers, had many conversations with them. And, what, and when they, when they put out a book like this, when they put out a book like this, talking about very personal, intimate issues, then you start attracting people who experience that. Um, and you start, I don't want to say, it's a f I, well, I, I won't say you almost build a following of, of wounded people. You end up having a following of wounded people um, who want to talk to you about their life. You know, and even though they'd written the book ten years before, mm -hmm. people just discovered, it and so they're just you know. And I was curious: are you are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for that kind of um, uh, appreciance for your work? That yeah. oh my god, that happened to me too. You know, can we talk about this? Yeah. You know, so as you're shopping in the supermarket. You know? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be that recognizable. Yeah. But my my um, friend um, who's also in my writing group, Alex Marzano Lesnevich, wrote a book called "A Fact of the Fact of a Body," and um, she they told me that they had this experience of receiving emails and almost every day of folks who are telling and disclosing their stories. So Alex published their book first and gave me some lead time, like a couple of years, to think about how I would respond and react. And so, um, so far I, I have gotten some emails and not a lot, not, not the level that Alex was getting. Um, and I thank people for sharing with me and then, you know, invite them to, I mean, I'm not a therapist, I don't have the resources to do that, but there are really wonderful resources like RAIN that I, um, that I send people to. Um, but I understand it. I mean, I'm a lifelong reader and I would read something and sometimes I'd look a person up and then be really sad to learn that they had died five years ago or something. <laughs> like, I get it. Like, there's something that I've put out and therefore someone wants to, like, send something back my way. So that's okay. Like I'm, I would, I understand that impulse and that desire to be recognized and seen. So, so far it's been manageable and I've, I've talked to people about how I might deal with that, but it's not, it's no big deal right now. It's not happening a lot. Okay. Um, yeah. It hasn't been out for a month yet. So no, it's only been out for a couple. Only of weeks. a month, and you're already getting you're already getting emails. That's a yes. sign. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. When it's out Talk of the year. Talk to me in paperback. We'll right. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of um, a following, let's open it up for questions oh, sure. from the audience. Uh, would anyone have a yeah? Provide in terms of informing a larger 
Sure. Well, the first question about Tagalog, if, um, you know, if a, if uh, a press in the Philippines or wanted to do that, my publishing company would be happy to have the work translated. Um, I believe 80% of Filipinos speak and read English, so it might not, it might be, you know, they might have to translate it, but they might not either. Um, I would love for the book to be available in the Philippines. Um, and in terms of what you said about people not knowing about the Philippines, it's something like weaving in, understanding that people didn't have information, even basic information about the Philippines, such as it was a um, US colony. Um, people don't know that. So I had to learn how to weave it in, um, but not give long digressions into um, history. And it was something I had to like grapple with over several years, actually, because it doesn't just show its way in this book, but also in my fiction. I had to think about what do I want to inform or educate the reader about. And then there was a time that I got kind of angry about it, and I thought, well, why do I have to do that? Like, we look up mm. stuff for Dickens mm. and like Joyce. I mean, there's whole books that are as thick as, um, you know, Finnegan's Wake that'll help you read Finnegan's Wake, right? <laughs> so I'm not going to be that dense about stuff, but if people want to learn more about U.S. colonization or the fact that, you know, more Filipinos died in the Philippine-American War than in Vietnam, I mean, there's just like people can like look that up pretty easily. Um, and I would go to readings like Jessica Hagerdorn and other people and ask them these questions and they, they kind of paved the way and said these, th these things like you don't have to be the historian, you're not an historian. Um, you know, your job is to tell the story first and foremost. And so I wanted um, information to come through emotionally and through story. I didn't feel anymore that it was my responsibility to educate people. Um, you know, I, I taught in Asian American studies for some time at Tufts, Asian American literature, and there I realized, like, this should be American literature. Like, this is not, this is part of a U.S. literature, but the fact that we have to put it in Asian American literature means that people aren't getting this material in high school and in other places, so we have to do this work. Um, but that's different. That was, you know, an educational situation, and I think for the book, if I want storytelling to be first, then that has to be first and information comes second. But thank you. Shana? Um, Sure. I mean, I think about storytelling all the time, like in my teaching and my work as a writer, I'm constantly thinking about it. And when I was teaching um, writing at Tufts, I, I was, it was composition writing. So people were learning how to write, you know, academic papers and things like that. But we, even there, we were talking about storytelling because what is the story 
what is like the story that you're getting um, from this source and what is the story you're getting from that source? Like just understanding that there are, that each source is telling a different kind of story and they perhaps have their reasons for telling that story. Um, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that there were, I didn't even know there was a storyteller like for a long time. I had to understand that everybody had their versions of stories and there might be reasons that they told those stories and we had to challenge and question what those reasons might be. Um, and I think the situation that we're in now where um, different people are trying to control the narrative about our politics and you know, um, discount the work that journalists do and say, no, listen to me, I'm the one in power, but I'm gonna tell you what I think the story is. We have to be very careful about that and like really try to challenge and, and have a process for understanding stories and you know what, what, what do facts mean and how do we find out facts and things like that. And some of the work that I've done as a journalist or a reporter helped me um, learn some of those techniques about interviewing sources and finding a piece of information in three different places and just things like that. Um, but I think stories are incredibly important, and especially perhaps even the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. You know, and you can change the way you feel about things that happen in your life, whether you figure as a, a hero or as a victim, even that as a kind of storytelling about your life impacts the way that you live it. Um, so I think, I mean, I think about story all the time and I love thinking about stories. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Sure. So memoir is writing that is based on memory. So, you know, if you remember it, then that's like fair game. It's writing about memory. Um, but I also brought in some of my like reporting and research skills into this. And I did FOIA requests. I looked at hundreds of slides taken of me as a child. I looked at report cards. I mean, it's called the body papers because I looked at a lot of papers um, to inform my writing. Um, and some of the story, some of the facts were wrong. Like, my parents told me my whole life that I came to this country when I was three years old and I did a FOIA request on myself and I did the math and I was like, no, we didn't arrive here when I was three years old in the winter. That's when my memory starts, but actually the paperwork from the US and Philippine government say that I came here in the middle of the summer when I was two. So, you know, this story that I've been telling myself my whole life, oh, it was so cold when I got here when I was three, there was a storm, I dressed, you know, I saw snow for the first time. Maybe that's where my memory begins, but the paperwork says I got here when I was two in July. So to me, that's what's interesting and that's part of the writing and um, the making of the narrator that tells the story, the body papers. That's part of the journey is like finding out that memory is mutable and changeable and perhaps even writing about a memory changes that memory somewhat. But there are still things you can go back to. You can look at passports, you can look at photographs, you know, if you wanna be, but even a photograph, there's some subject subjectivity there as well. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Um, both, the group, I mean, 
the work that I do as the, a teacher, it's not for me. It's very much for the students, right? So that's a huge shift already is I'm really like thinking like what's going to be best for them and their learning and where the, wherever they're at. But when I'm in my writing group, it's I'm definitely more vulnerable and it's me opening up to the group and learning about all kinds of things. Like everyone in there, there's 11 of us, everyone in there has a different strength, I think. And some people are like masters of structure and even lecture us, giving us lectures on structure um, and or, you know, um, omniscient narrator and, and things like that. Like everyone has a different strength and we try to draw on those strengths and ask each other for help. Um, so that that is very, very a different situation entirely. Um, and one that, you know, I'm very lucky to be a part of because we help each other. And it, you know, it took a long time to find that group. And it also took concerted efforts at developing the group to be the way it is. Like we have, we have rules, we've had that changed over time, we have agreements with each other. You know, it's a, a relationship that has evolved over five years. Um, and, it, and it's very productive and helpful. Brian? the time. I mean, I've, I mean, what, <laughs> I get a different story from them all the time. Like I've re even recorded them because there's been times when, I mean, I have files of like recordings and they'll tell a different story every couple of years about why. And I agree with that. Like maybe the stories that we tell ourselves change over time too. The one story we came to the United States because my dad got this fellowship and they were fully planning on going back. That is the story that we get. But then sometimes I've heard that, well, they weren't going to go back because everyone, so many people were getting killed that they knew with Marcos dictatorship and they didn't want their kids to grow up in that situation. So I think maybe, you know, that it, just things change. Like it's a rapidly changing situation. I could say the same about me. Like when I went to the Philippines in 2015, Aquino was president. We lived in this area that we loved and we thought we could come back here. Like we could live on like a very little amount of US income and have like a really nice standard of living and we could write and my husband could take photographs. Um, and then something changed, which is a new president came in and a thousand people were getting killed every month. So like we're not going back now, you know? So things I think change all the time. Um, and perhaps, you know, my parents, the story they tell themselves about why they came to this country will change as they get older, too, and have their grandchildren and, and so forth. Um, Aquino 2, Aquino 2, not the, not Cory's son, but yeah. Yes, the other, the, yes. Yeah, the yes, yes uh, Cory's son. Which is, yeah. this is always interesting to me because as you write the memoir, I think part of writing memoirs, you're also working with other people's memories, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you're yeah. working with, your, you know, and... Is there a point as a memoirist Rachel, to say, well, okay, that's all I need. You know, I don't have to fact check everything. When you talked about even checking, um, doing the FOIA request, I think that's more work than most memoirists do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> True, did it really line up, you know? Um, can you talk about uh, uh, the blending of fact and fiction and what's acceptable, and um, particularly since we live in a very litigious society that some people say, no, that's not true, that's not the way it happened. You know, um, yeah. how do you deal with all of that? Sure. Well, I published some pieces in the book. There was one piece about my father where his mother punished him by um, 
uh, in a really violent kind of way. And that published in Brevity magazine. And I got responses from my relatives that said, it, you know, sure it happened. We don't dispute that it happened. But we want you to unpublish it because we don't like it. And I said, no. <laughs> like, first of all, what is unpublished? I don't even know what that means. Um, but, you know, it had consequences. I never yeah. saw one of the aunts again. Like, she died, and she never, I never saw her again. She was like a favorite aunt of mine. And I didn't know that that was going to happen. But um, I still think it was worth it. Like, my father, you know, he was like five or six years old when that thing happened to him. And I think it's been important for him to see his story in there and to have, like, be witnessed in some way this this thing that happened just between him and his mother. Um, so I don't know. It was worth it worth it to me. But no one wants to sue me, thank goodness, at this point. But um, they, dis they don't dispute my story. They dispute my right to tell it. Or they say, like, shouldn't you just tell good stories or happy stories? And I feel very strongly, no, it's dangerous <laughs> to just tell a happy story. You know, if it's not appropriate for a child to read it, then they don't need to read it till they're older. That's I get that. Um, but I think they you know, we need to know what's possible. Um, and my nieces and are starting to read it. Um, they're um, in high school and things like that, so their parents have decided it's okay for them to read the book, and their response has been so moving to me. Like, they're, um, I mean, that's huge. That's been wonderful to see how they've taken the book. They're lending it to their friends, and I don't know. There's something wonderful about that to me, that they have that story. So, so far, so good. I know some people are mad at me, not in my immediate family, but my father is fielding all of that. And I told him to, I said, you know, or my mother told him, made him. But I was like, I can't, I, I don't have the bandwidth right now. I'm really sorry. I can't like be dealing with all these relatives who are mad at me. And my mother said, yes, your father will do it. And so he has, he's been fielding it all. I think, you know, and he's been up for it, which I appreciate him defending me. I do. That's beautiful. Glad to hear that. Thanks. Ben. Yes. Hi, Ben. Well, um, you know, Alex Marzano Lesnevich, The Fact of a Body. We were in writing group together, so in their work, definitely in their techniques and, you know, what they thought about was very influential. Um, I want to say, I know Dorothy Allison is not a memoirist with Bastard Out of Carolina. I know it's a novel, but that influenced me a lot. Maxine Hong Kingston, um, The Woman Warrior. I know it's an old book, but her work around speculation and perhapsing is very influential. And that's like this this work that, I don't know, even know how to categorize it. It's a novel, it's a memoir, it's who knows what it is. But um, that that what she did um, in that book was really influential. Um, I mean, some of these books are not memoirs. The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison. Um, there were all these texts that I thought of. Alice Walker's The Color Purple. There's these works that were that were very memorable to me growing up. Um, me reading them and thinking about what I could possibly, how I might fit in to a bookshelf. Like by thinking about some of the th the innovations and things they did. Sandra Cisneros, um, House on Mango Street. All of these works informed um, this book. Um, any final questions? I will say, if anyone ever asks me, they says, who are some of your favorite memoirs? I'm actually going to say Grace Talusan. Oh, no, wow. seriously, Thank seriously. You. I think that 
truly, when, when people say, because well, first of all, I was, I was trying to think about, um, I'm like, I was like, what other Filipino-American memoirists do I know? And, um, uh, well, I'm, I don't have a book, you know, but I've written memoiric things, but, you know, and I was, uh, and I was thinking, gosh, there aren't that many people. I was thinking of uh, Jose Antonio Vargas, who, yes. who's a He's face, right who's, who's become yeah. the intellectual face of the undocumented movement. He's Filipino, but his work is, yeah, he talked about his personal life, but it's also an intellectual argument about why immigration policy needs to change, you mm -hmm. know, so it's not like, you know, but, but this was really, um, I mean, you went deep. I mean, you went deep, you went down, you went higher, you went further. Um, yet at the same time, it, there was no, there was no um, self-pity in it. There was no, there was a lot of hope, I guess, in it too, which which um, makes it look like this so uplifting. And that I hope that you you continue to um, uh, uh, write memoirically, <laughs> personal essayistically, you know, so we can get more of your point of view in the world. So um, let's thank Grace for her her wonderful work. Thank you, Noah. Thank you. Yeah, really, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.